Well, good morning again, and uh, come on up here and uh, grab your Bible, and we are going to start and end, hopefully, <laughs> and close out the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. We'll be doing 2 Corinthians here, uh, 12 and 13. Uh, maybe we should just pause here, of course, and pray for the service, but also let's pray for uh, Rachel Reynolds. She's going with us uh, on the trip tomorrow, and uh, her COVID tests hadn't come back, and uh, she just called Walgreens, and they say she'd never been there to take the test, which is strange because she was there on Friday. So let's pray for her and make sure that uh, the Lord gets her there, of course, uh, and he's going to, we have faith, and uh, help her to calm her nerves and stuff like that, because that's a panicky situation, I guess. So, Lord, we just come here this morning. We're thankful and grateful for who you are, what you are, Lord, and what you've accomplished, what you continue to do. And uh, we pray for Rachel and her family, and we pray, Lord, that you would somehow, some way, orchestrate and work out these, uh, this red tape uh, that needs to get done before she can travel tomorrow. And uh, also, Lord, we're praying uh, that you do a mighty work in our hearts as we study this, uh, these high areas of the Scripture here with respect to grace and weakness and encouragement. And so we just pray, Lord, that you'd be here with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are going to try and close out the book of Corinthians today. This is going to take something on your part, and my part, well, mostly on my part, but it's going to take something on your part, too. And here's what it is, uh, not to close it out, but I'm going to challenge you today, like all days, challenge myself, I'm going to challenge you, I'm going to challenge you with this scripture. I use this often, but today in particular, I think we need this perspective, and here it is. If then you were raised with Christ... If you were raised with Christ, think about that. Are you raised with Christ? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and he's come into your life by the person and work of the Holy Spirit? You've said that you will repent and receive all that he has for you and you've become a follower of Christ and uh, now you're living your life for Christ as he is Lord and Savior of your life. If you then are raised with Christ, you've been raised to new life, what are we to do? Seems like this is a commandment, as much as it could be in the New Testament. Seek those things which are above. And the word in the Greek for seek is a really, you know, demonstrative, action-packed word. Do whatever you can to seek out those things which are above, the eternal things. We live so much for this world. But Paul, in his book to the Col or his letter to the Colossians in chapter three, as I'm reading from, says, "Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right or sitting at the right hand of God." How did Christ get there? He became poor for your sakes, the richest of the rich, the Son of God came out of the heavens as a baby with diapers and tiredness and sleep. And he grew up 
and he was rejected by his own. And he marched to the cross with a firm resolve, even though he asked in the garden, Lord, if there's any other way, please, if there's any other way, but if not, Lord, your will be done. And he died. And he rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So it says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. All of those things that we just talked about, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God in the power seat. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth or not of things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Seems to me this chapter and all chapters, but especially this chapter, we're going to need help in setting our thing or mind on things above, our heart, our life, our everything. We're going to count and live for, we're going to count on and live for and act out based on Christ's plan for us in eternity. Not because we earn a paycheck or have a white picket fence or can golf in retirement or travel through the air and enjoy. Nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But if they take over our lives and not the eternal things, oh boy, we're in trouble. And here Paul comes to a place of criticism. He's been talking about it now for a couple chapters. He has been involved with this Corinthian church. He established it for 18 months. He poured everything into it, man. Blood, sweat, tears, building up the saints so that they could multiply there in Corinth in southern Greece. And they had fallen into lots of sin. Uh, You know, unthankful, uh, gossipy, suing one another, sexual sin, and on and on and on. And the first book took care of that. He wrote a letter in the first Corinthians, in first Corinthians to sort of address that. And there were some other letters we've, we don't have, but the second Corinthians letter survived. And this letter is more of Paul now coming and opening up his heart about how he uh, sees the church there in Corinth And in chapter 10, all the way through the end of this book, now we have him addressing these super critics. He calls them eminent apostles. It's sarcasm almost. He's saying to the Corinthian church, Here, these people have been coming behind me and my ministry team as we've taught the doctrine of grace. We've taught about grace. And they're sort of these super or apostles or the eminent apostles who've filled in. It's grace and something, grace but something. And they keep saying things to you to sort of, he's talking to Corinth, that sort of get you off plan or topic or mission. And Paul now has been giving a defense of his credentials. And what I want you to see is he's not giving a list of his credentials like we do in the world so that we can sort of, you know, be bragging or sort of be seen in the eyes of people as, you know, higher than we really are. You know, you attach things like 
PhD and JD. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you, you know what I'm saying. We sort of give our credentials so people will like us. Well, Paul is not exactly doing that. He's giving his credentials as compared to these eminent apostles, not so that people will like him, but so that the church itself will believe the gospel that he delivered to them and not be swayed by others who are creeping in to get them off the doctrine that Jesus himself delivered unto Paul there in Arabia, Galatians 1, and other places. He is jealous for the church. You know that. He is jealous for the church. And we talked about that last week. All jealousy is not bad. <laughs> There's bad jealousy, of course. You see it on the news. It's all about self. If I can't have you, no one will type of stuff. And it's bad and it's inappropriate and shouldn't happen. But there's a good jealousy and pastors should have it. Husbands and wives should have the good jealousy, not the bad jealousy. Pastors are to have it. We're jealous for you. What are we jealous? Not that you would... You know, the Lord would speak to you and you, you moved on to another church and you, oh, I'm jealous because they went to another church. That's not that. It's a jealousy that you would uh, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and get equipped so that you could go out and do your ministry that God's called you to and bring people into the kingdom of God as God works in and through you. That's a good jealousy. And so a pastor or a shepherd, they keep the wolves out and then feed and nourish not in some inappropriate, weird shepherding thing that went through the church, but, but the, the appropriate, healthy, spiritually way. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's giving his credentials not to brag upon himself, but because he's jealous for them, and he wants them to grow correctly. Everybody good with that? Okay, so when you hear that, you go, or, or excuse me, when you, when you understand that from his writings, you see in here then, not that he tells us directly what the eminent super apostles were claiming, but by his response to the Corinthian church, you can deduce what the apostles were actually bragging about, the super apostles. Get it? And here now, watch this, very famous piece of scripture. He says, it's doubtless, verse 1, chapter 12, 2 Corinthians, not profitable for me to boast. Just what we're talking about. I don't want to do this, he's saying. I, it gains me nothing. I don't want to be seen in the eyes of men as being more than I am, but I have to do it. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And if you know anything about Paul, this was a recurring thing for Paul. In fact, if you read in the way in which he was converted to Christianity, he's walking to Syria to go kill the Christians, to murder them, to call them out, to be against them. And what happens, you all know, the Lord appears to him. Why are you persecuting me, the Lord says. And that encounter did it not change the course of Paul's life. And really, in a certain way, it's the reason we're sitting here today. Because 
the gospel of Jesus Christ spread around the ancient world and then over time out and out. What a ripple effect. And he had visions. He had uh, many more than just this. You could search Acts. Uh, you could search uh, his writings. He had many visions and revelations from the Lord. So he was used to it. And so what he's saying here is, I don't really want to boast, but I'm coming to you. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And he wants to now tell a story of something that happened to him 14 years ago. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago. Now that man is Paul. And the reason we think it's Paul is because when we get to uh, verse 7 and beyond in this chapter... This changes from the third person to the first person. And even here, he's reluctant to just come out and say, I was the one who had this vision. In other words, he said something like, you know, like the people from New Jersey say, I know a guy. (laughs) I know a guy. Well, that person happened to be him, and I want you to see something. He's piped up and kept quiet about it for 14 years years. If this was in today's world, you know what would happen if we had such a vision as we're going to read? There would be book deals, podcasts, CDs sold. We would go out and write it down in maybe even a movie. And maybe that's not bad. It helps us in some ways. But Paul, he piped down about it. He didn't speak of it for 14 years. Which tells me something. He was really jealous, in a good way, for the sheep, the flock at Corinth. He loved them. For 14 years, he didn't say anything. But there's... Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. The first thing you should note is that he has no idea whether he was in the body or out of the body. He he doesn't know. This was something that just happened to him, but it was as real as the nose on his face. He was caught up to the third heaven. What's the third heaven? Well, you guys sort of, you'll know that. I mean, the first heaven is what you're breathing right now (laughs) and sort of what we fly in and that sort of thing, the atmosphere. The second heaven is the stars and the constellations and the planets and the galaxies and the universe. That's the second heaven. But the third heaven would be then, wouldn't it, the place where God resides? He was called up to a place that God resides. Now you can see how tempting it would be for a book deal to take place. Didn't happen. Fourteen years, he's quiet. Here he comes and he says, I don't know whether I was out of the body or in the body. I don't know. I couldn't write it down that way, but God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, this is interesting to me talks about something so great and so high and so lofty, he could hardly or couldn't even put them into words. 
And again, I'm not trying to belabor the point, but if in today's modern church culture, in many places, if this had happened to one of us, we would have capitalized upon it. Here, he just wants you to know it was so great and so wonderful. I can't even tell you. I wonder why the Bible doesn't give us more information about being in heaven. We know some things. We do know some things, but some things, quite frankly, are murky. We know it's going to be grand and glorious. And I wonder, I've heard one pastor say, maybe the Lord didn't tell us all the details from heaven because we would do anything we could to get there so fast. And the Lord has work for us to do here. We have a problem. We're here and we think our life is about the the picket fence and the golf clubs and all the things I mentioned before. But here the real deal is people are in sin. And sin separates people from hell or from God and puts them away from God for eternity in hell. And God has something for us to do. And heaven's so wonderful and glorious, praise the Lord. But Paul knew. He could go on and be, as he says in another place, he could go on and be with the Lord, and that would be the best. But to be here and to share his gospel and to love people and to uh, uh, walk into the pe- uh, people's hurt and mess and suffering and bring the gospel to them, oh, that is a privilege as well. Paul knew it. Here you know it. So I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise. Remember he said something to the thief on the cross? Thief on the cross, he didn't serve in any, you know, building committee or he didn't give certain amounts of money in the budget. He just took what was given to him by Jesus, all that he could know about Jesus, put his faith in Jesus, and Jesus said to him, right there on the cross, today, you'll be with me in paradise. You'll be with me forever. Well, that's a good thing. And here, Paul's given a glimpse into paradise, and he heard inexpressible words, which is another interesting point. Isn't it another interesting point? that words matter, and that there will be words in heaven. Good words, lofty words, wonderful words. Look in verse 5. Of such a one, I will boast. So here he's like laying the groundwork, or laying the foundation, the, the groundwork. I just mix those two words together. But anyway, the foundation and the groundwork, he lays it, and here's what he says. I'm going to boast in this, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. Wow. And now we start to get to learn more, a little more about Paul. For though I might desire to boast, interesting again, <laughs> here's the, you know, what some people consider, you know, the greatest evangelist of all time. He admits If it was left up to him without the Lord in his life, 
He'd be a braggart. He would think highly of himself. He would think that, yes, he had done all these great things for the Lord, and the Lord needed him and must have him on his team. He says, I might desire to boast. I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Which is just so beautiful. Here is Paul who doesn't want to put on any pretenses. I don't want you to think more highly of me than you should. In another place, you know this, Paul called himself the least of the saints. He also said he was the chief or chiefest of sinners. He was sinner numero uno. I worked in Spanish there for my friend. There we go. (laughs) That's all I know. (laughs) He was the chief of sinners. And I don't think, you know how some people in the Christian world have this false humility that's sort of sickening? You know what I'm talking about? I'm just the worst. I'm just the worst person in the world, and I want you to know it. Is really sort of a form of bragging, isn't it? I don't think that was Paul here. I think Paul knew what was black, dark, deep, evil in there. He knew it because he had been it. He had watched and witnessed people get murdered at his direction and call, all in the name of religion. And he knew from where he came. See, that's the reason I think the Bible says that we can rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. If we don't know what we are as sinners, how could we ever possibly rejoice? There would be nothing to joy over. You know, there's this thing in us that tends to say, well, we're pretty good. Well, here Paul knew. There was, e- there was sin. There was darkness He knew it. He felt it. And God saved him from it through that vision and that encounter. And he didn't want to put on any pretenses. He wanted you to know. Just lay it out in a transparent way. I'm the chiefest of sinners. I'm the least of the saints. I think he felt it, not falsely. It's what kept him going in those times that we read about Last week, in all the distresses and the things, the striping, the canings, the beatings, all those things, he kept going for the glory of the Lord. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he needed the Lord, and he didn't put on airs. When I first became a Christian, I was sort of confused. And and I'm not trying to be too hard on the Christian world, but, you know, I'd hear these sayings like, yeah, man, like, oh, God bless you. I pray for you and, and stuff like that. And, and you knew darn well the person who said it was never going to pray for, for you or would forget or not remember. And, and, and it was just sort of like fake and phony. And I was always trying to evaluate, well, what, what is going on there? Well, what Paul's saying is, I don't want to do any of that here. I'm I'm going to tell you some of my credentials, but it's not for me to brag to you. In fact, I know I'm the chiefest of sinners, but I'm telling you this because I want you to stay the course in the gospel that I've delivered to you. Boy, that's important. Well, watch this. And he goes on and he says, 
And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. Just because I've seen this great thing that God has privileged me to see, there's nothing about me. I shouldn't go on the, the book tour, the podcast tour. You shouldn't think more highly of me. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, Paul would say. I shouldn't be exalted above measure. And one of the ways that the Lord took care of that in me, Paul says, is there was a thorn in the flesh that was, say it with me, given, that's important, given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, by the way, in my Bible... The next sentence is in red, which means what? Jesus spoke these words. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For, here it comes, the staggering verse, the one you put up on your refrigerator, and rightly so. For when I am weak, Paul says, then I am strong. I don't want to be exalted above measure, Paul says, but he recognizes, like probably you and I should, that As we mature and grow in the Christian life and the Lord starts to work and do things in us, we have this tendency to say things like this. Wow, I'm doing really good. Man, I haven't, you know, done this. I've been in Bible study three weeks in a row and I've done my devotions and this is amazing and I'm just doing great and the Lord really does need to use me. We say things like this. We think things like this. But Paul did, knew he wouldn't, didn't want to be exalted above measure by the, even the things that had happened to him, by the grace, the privilege of seeing these revelations. So he recognizes that there was a thorn in the flesh given to him. And I think given is important. Because given is a word of grace. Say, oh my, wait a second. You see, we know that this thorn in the flesh, well, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, but people debate it all the time, and it was some sort of uh, really tough thing that was difficult for Paul. Maybe it was an eye problem. Maybe it was a back problem. Maybe it was something else. Maybe it was some medical problem, uh, whatever. But I want you to know that the word thorn, you, you know the thorn that you get when you go hiking or whatever, and it gets you a thorn or it gets in your shoe, and you can pluck it out or whatever. That's not the word in the Greek. Thorn is sort of just what they could come up with. This is a spike. It's referring to sort of a tent peg, maybe, and even as much as an 18-inch spike. This is something that was constantly hurtful and rough and tough, whether it was physical or spiritual, I can't say for sure, but it was something that really, really, really bothered Paul. It's a spike, not a thorn. And that's important, and some sort of thorn in the flesh was given to me. 
And then it goes on and says it was a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And people, well, let me, let me stop. Buffet there, it's not buffet. He didn't go eat with the devil. This is the word punching about. This is, means beaten up. And so people debate here, was this given by God or did Satan do this? And probably the answer is yes. We know, right, from the book of Job that the enemy of our souls had access to God and that God allowed Satan to do what he did with Job. And here, a thorn in the flesh was given, but a messenger of Satan it was to beat him about. I mean, this was something that bothered Paul for a long time, and it was very hurtful. We're all clear on that, right? And so, what do we do in, when we get in those situations? Have you ever had a situation, a person, or sorrow of some kind, or somebody's walked out on you, the boss said, no more working here, dream job, or maybe you've heard the word cancer, or somebody's passed away in your life, or, or whatever. I don't know. Or there could be a million things. And the first thing I want you to see about this portion of Scripture is that the greatest evangelist maybe in the world of all time prayed to the Lord three times. He was fervent in his prayers. Jesus told us, right, if you don't want to grow faint and weary, keep praying. Paul did it. You just keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember this? He went in, he prayed, he left his, he had to come out a couple times. I mean, it was... He, he was there, and, and we see sort of three installments of his praying. And this sort of mirrors that, which is interesting. And here's what I want you to say. God didn't answer the prayer to remove the thorn, the spike, the terrible situation. Are you doing, are you seeing that? There are some people in the Christian world that say if you just believe and you have enough faith, anything, you know, you can manipulate the Lord and you can do what you want with the Lord. And if you're sick, it's inappropriate because there's something must be in your life. Here, the greatest uh, evangelist of all time, he prays to the Lord and three times, uh, you know, he's not growing faint, just keeps asking, keeps seeking, keep knocking, sort of model of prayer of Jesus God says this through Christ. Well, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And what the Lord is saying there, look at this, is there's something better for your spiritual life than the removal of the hurtful circumstance. Come on. You know, the Lord can remove things. He does do those things sometimes. He removes it out of your life. But thank the, 
Or thank him that he knows you and I better than we do, and he suits your spiritual walk for what you need. And here, apparently, Paul had a pride issue, and I could identify with Paul there. God hates pride. God says he'll give grace to the humble but opposes the proud. Doesn't he say that? James 4, 6 and other places. So a person who's going to receive the grace of God needs to be in a humble place, a place of teachability, of being, wanting to be mold and shape, pride out of life, humility in life, so that they can receive from the Lord. And what the Lord says here is, hey, Paul, I'm not removing the circumstance, but I'm going to do something way better that you never thought of. And this is the beauty of the Lord. I'm going to transform that thing that's been most hurtful to you and turn it around to the place where you can see it as a graceful gift. A gift that keeps you in the place where you are emptying yourself from the, or emptying your life of the self life. In that you don't want to be exalted in your life, but you want me, the Lord says, to be exalted in and through your life. And without this thorn, Paul, it would never come through so brightly. You see this same sort of thing in John 16. If you go and read John 16, and I think it's around the 16th verse or somewhere. It's somewhere in there. Just read your subtitles there. Jesus is talking about sorrow and joy. And if you read it closely, Jesus doesn't say, I'll take your sorrow and replace it with joy. He actually says, I'll take your sorrow and turn it into joy. I mean, what? How? But he even answers that. And what he says is this. There's a purpose here for your thorn, the Lord says. I don't want you, or I know you don't want to be, the Lord says, exalted above what you should be exalted. That's the purpose of the thorn. It's it's to keep you in the place of humility. Why? So you keep receiving my grace. I'm going to give you and deliver to you in your time of hurt and need, and despair, grace that is sufficient for you. And your strength is going to be made perfect in weakness. And you say to yourself, in the throes of life, I'll take care of this issue. I'll work it out with my spouse. I'll work it out with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'll work it out at work and my boss. I'll work that thing out in my life that I can't fix. Financially, I'll work those things out. And we come at life with a lot of self-dependence. But Paul tells us through his writings, and especially Jesus says, no, when you feel like that, you're actually inhibiting the work of God's grace in your life when you're self-sufficient. But when you are the place where you're weak, 
where there is a thorn and it won't go away. And you keep saying, Lord, remove it from me, remove it from me. And it just doesn't get removed. The Lord is saying, I want to do something greater than remove it from you. Removing it from you is the easy thing. But if it stays there, I'm going to take the very source of the thing that hurts you and turn it around for incredible good and glory. And he says the way in which that happens in your life is when you come to the place where you say, Lord, I can't do it. I've tried. Everything I've ever known or thought or manipulated in my mind with the situation, none of it worked. And now I'm coming to you and saying, Lord, I need you. I'm not just saying it because it's in a song anymore. I'm not just saying it because I think it's the thing you want to hear. I really need you. What do you think Jesus was doing at the cross, folks? Man, if there's any other way, as we mentioned earlier, just take this cup from me. Oh, but Lord, not my will, but thine be done. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I need you, Lord, desperately. The only way this could ever happen is if you enter in, and of course the Lord raises Jesus from the dead. When we're at the end of our rope, we have nowhere else to turn I'm convinced the Lord says, finally, now I can work. Now you'll see the beauty. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, let's just do this real quickly. I like to continue to give you different aspects of grace. I think people think grace oftentimes is just for our salvation. Well, let's read this, a quote from the website Precept Austin. Grace is God's unmerited help for our undeserving, uh, or for, for one undeserving, with no thought or ability to give recompense. Did you catch that? That's important. Grace is God's unmerited help for one who is undeserving, with no thought or ability to give recompense. I can't even pay you back, Lord. You ever tried to buy somebody's lunch sometime, and they were like, no, 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 no. Here, it's like, oh, I couldn't have done it any other way, and there's no way I could ever pay you back, Lord. Grace isn't some static concept. Man, if I would have you write one thing down, I would have you write this down. Grace is not some static concept or some thing in the clouds, some high lofty thought. No, grace isn't that. It's a dynamic force which totally transforms the believer's life, and it begins with salvation. But it continues in our sanctification, growing more like Christ, where grace instructs us in our daily walk of godliness. And then all through eternity, in our glorification, grace is there, 1 Peter 1 and Ephesians 2, 7. Grace enables the believers, listen to this, to suffer, endure without grumbling or complaining and enables our weakness or suffering to be used for God's glory. 
When a Christian turns away from living by God's grace, he or she must depend upon their own power, and this invariably, invariably leads to failure and disappointment. Our God is the God of all grace, 1 Peter 5.10. His throne is a throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. His word is the word of grace, Acts 20.30. And the last verse of the Bible says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. The Bible is about God's grace. Here's another definition, one sentence, so I won't keep killing you. David Goodzig says this, I love it, grace is the power of God, listen to this, to fulfill what we lack. The problem for many of us is we don't feel like we lack anything. Warren Wearsby says this, grace is God's provision for our every need when we need it. Oh, I like that one. But anyway, grace is the resurrection power by which we live, the supernatural power and resource and ability to live this life. It's fueled and given by God. You don't have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps anymore and put on a brave face when you're not brave. You can say to the Lord, I need encouraged. I don't feel great today. I'm worried about this. I need you, Lord. I need you. And I'm convinced when we get to those places, he goes, perfect. So my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Think about it. You know what grace says to you? It, 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 it meets, you know, all those theories that you learn in school. And I'm, I, I won't quote them, but I mean, the, the needs for love and acceptance and the need to be heard and to matter and to have safety and security. You know what I'm talking about? You learn these things in school. I think Maslow might have said some of these things, but some of the people in this audience would know better than I would. <laughs> but see, grace meets all of that. You know what grace says? You matter. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know how, but the Lord just pours out everything for you because he loves you so much. That's grace. And so you can walk through life. You don't have to have low esteem. You're esteemed by God. And notice, as you study the Bible, it's not like when you get into one particular situation or not. The Bible tells us that Jesus, whose grace himself, right, he was given for the world. Listen to this. All you need for life and godliness is in him. So everything you need. And my point is, grace never runs out. It's available all the time. You come to him and you ask for the grace. Lord, I can't get along with that person. That person drives me up the wall. I don't think I can do it, Lord. You've called me to love them. They're enemy. They, they talk about me behind my back. How can I do this? I have no patience for them. You ever heard that? Lord, I know I can't do it, and you've asked me to. Lord, help me in these areas. And it's available. It's available all the time. And 
This is the thing, grace, his resurrection power that strengthens you then. So that you can say rightly, I am the chief of sinners. And then you say in the next turn of the phrase, at the same time, I'm the chief of the sinners, but I'm also a child of the king by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he supplies power and resource as he calls you out into a spiritual battle. If you're just practically going out into battle, and I've never been in the military, but I think one of the things that you'd want to know, in fact, you've been reading about it now, the people in Ukraine, the leaders are doing this. You know what you would say as you go to battle? Okay, tell me what my weapons are. I need to know what I have available at my disposal so we can go and fight. And oh, by the way, I need to know about the enemy. Well, as we've been reading through 2 Corinthians, folks, as we participate in the battle, he strengthens us for the battle and actually goes and fights on our behalf. It's incredible. So why am I telling you all that? Because see, this matters in every area of your life. When you get to the place where you say, Lord, I don't really need you today. I mean, I know how to be a lawyer or to be a businessman or to do this or to be a doctor or whatever. I know how to do it, Lord. Well, you've just got to the place where you've exalted yourself higher than you should. And boy, am I guilty of that. And I want you to see one thing that Paul writes right after the Jesus quote of my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness and here's why I read to you Colossians 3 1 through 3 set your mind on things above we as Christians are to have an eternal perspective look at this I want you to see something this turned into something that I was worried about I was concerned about, I prayed, I was perplexed, I was having anxiety, my stomach was hurting, I was in ulcers, to something that I was glad about, Paul said. I came to the place where I could say, I'm so glad you didn't take away the spike. Because it grew me, because I saw how you would work when I depended upon you, and I was there at this place of weakness. I saw the beauty, just like the resurrection power of bringing Jesus from the dead and sitting him at the right hand of the Father. I see when I'm weak and depending and trusting and focused on how you can do it, Lord, and standing in your promises. When that happens, it makes me glad. What? An internal perspective. If, oh, we would just get this. And I would say one more thing about this little but big piece of Scripture. If you were Paul and you had prayed three times and you had been the greatest evangelist of all time, wouldn't you say to the Lord, why? <laughs> Me? Lord, look at everything I've done. How, how could you do this? Me? Why me? 
And I want you to see something here. The Lord never gave an explanation. He just gave a promise. You see that? He said, here's what I'll promise you. You probably won't understand why I'm doing this maybe all the time. Your tendency would be to ask why. I'll just give you a promise. My grace is sufficient for you. I'll supply you anytime, anywhere you need it. And you're going to be made strong in me through your weakness. Wow. Therefore, I take pleasure in affirmities, he said, and all these things for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Such an upside-down way of thinking from the world, right? I grew up thinking, get as strong as you can and beat everybody. Well, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles. You see that? Though I am nothing, truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. In other words, what he's saying is, I know you're trying, these uh, big-time apostles are coming in and they're trying to sway you, but I want you to remember all the things that you saw when we were there. Not that I'm boasting in me. I'm just, uh, he's just saying the simple gospel brings about powerful changes in people's lives. And I want you to remember that, Paul says. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that my myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Apparently, they got their feelings hurt. <laughs> because remember, Paul said, hey, when I come to you, I don't want you to pay me anything. This is such human nature. Is this such human nature? I don't want you to pay me for coming to minister to you because other churches have supplied and given me, you know, support. So when I come, don't pass the plate. I'm fine. <laughs> and the church apparently got offended. Like, oh, you don't think we're as nice a church as the church down the street? And Paul addresses that. Isn't that funny? The Bible is so real. It's incredible. Well, for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome, verse 14, to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. We could, oh, come on, put that on your refrigerator. He wasn't about the show and the building. He was about people. I'm about you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. What a pastor. By the way, you're called to do this for others as you make disciples. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. When you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, folks, and you love people this way, you're going to be misunderstood, and he tells you this. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Apparently, others were taking advantage. But Paul and his ministry team, no. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. What does edification mean? Build up from little to big, 
to build you up, to edify you. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, all the things that happen in the church when people live by the flesh and not by the Spirit. Anybody have ever been in a church split? How devastating is that? It's devastating, right? It's because people live not according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. And here, Paul says, listen, we're just doing things for your edification. We don't have a hidden agenda. And when we come, I wrote you some letters that were harsh, and I sort of had to talk to you in a harsh way. But I'm doing it so that you'll be built up. Sometimes somebody has to tell you the truth. Do you know that? Find somebody in your life you let tell the truth. Well, here, lest, verse 21, when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. This will be the third time I'm coming to you, verse 1. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established, using a Deuteronomy quote. I have told you before and foretell it as if I were present the second time and now being absent. I wrote to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. In other words, they were criticizing Paul, the eminent apostles, because he was weak. And Paul says, don't mistake the appropriate weakness that we're to have for me being shy to tell you the truth. In other words, I'm going to tell you the truth, Paul says. Folks, (laughs) when you become a part of a fellowship, this is not the Kiwanis Club. If you're looking at something bad on your phone, I would hope the brother or sister who knows you're doing it would come to you and say, you you got to stop this, man. Or if you're a gossiper, not you just keep saying, oh, that's funny you look at that stuff, or oh, yeah, keep, you know, I know you always talk about people, that's so funny. No, that's inappropriate. And while we can still love each other, we can still be truthful with one another. This says something else. Quit being so afraid of criticism. Americans hate the word criticism. They hate it. As long as it doesn't hurt you, it doesn't hurt me, don't tell me what to do, it's none of your business. What do you mean? We're in the body of Christ, and I'm supposed to look out for you, and you're to look out for me. Now, I'm supposed to be patient with you. You're supposed to be patient with me. We're not to go blabbing it around the church, but come on, right? Paul says it. In order to grow, you have to recognize that this is not right, he says it. That's appropriate in the church. We're to confess sin one to another. That's healthy, right? You get it? We don't just talk about the pirates or the penguins or the stealers all the time. We talk about the real things of life. Paul says it. It's healthy for the church. But beware now. Don't cloak it in you being the busybody of the church. There's no such office. Be appropriate in that way too. Well, he says, I'm not going to spare. I will uh, give you proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty 
in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. That's how we're to live as Christians. And then he says something that's amazing. (laughs) And he's writing to the Corinthians. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Now, this isn't where you doubt, am I saved, not doubt whether I'm saved. But listen, you're to examine yourself. And Paul here is giving us what a Christian looks like and does. And one of the tricks of the enemy is to get you involved in a church come and listen to the sermons, give some money in the box, serve on a committee, help somebody out, and think you're saved. And Paul says, if you just are doing it to keep up appearances or going through the motions or because it tickles your ears, that's not right. It's possible that in your heart there's been no inward transformation where you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and counted on his finished work and resurrection power. Are you seeing it? And so he says, examine yourselves in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? And that's it. Remember I told you this story one time. There's this guy downtown. I mean, screaming the gospel. Bullhorn, the whole shooting match. And I just wanted to get a bagel. (laughs) And he was a good brother, but... I was walking to lunch, and he bullhorned me. (laughs) I mean, I was only from here to the first row here, and I mean, it was loud, and it was crowded downtown, and brother, are you saved? Do you know that you're saved? And I gave him like, uh, you know, Kramer from Seinfeld, Christ in me, man, the hope of glory. And he was like, yeah, right on. He's screaming in the bullhorn. Well, Paul's sort of doing that right here. Do you want to know if you're saved? Do you know that Jesus has you and he's in you and you're in him? That you can, your spirit bears witness with his spirit and you can say this, Abba, Father. You know that you know. You're not a perfect person. You still fall and stumble and fall short and yet you repent and get up and the Holy Spirit's in your life. See, he's saying it right here. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? That's the test. Is he in you? If he is, you'll live like this. Everything he's told us before. Unless indeed you are disqualified. Disqualified how? Because he doesn't live in you. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable. Though we may seem disqualified. I know you got issues with us. You're starting to follow and think about those eminent apostles. Don't do any evil. Be honorable, he says, for we could do nothing against the truth but for the truth. I'm sorry, Paul says, but we had to tell you the truth. That's one of the marks of the false teachers. They aren't going to tell you the truth. You will hear of no sin. You won't hear of repentance. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong And this also we pray, that you may be made complete, which means, right in your Bible, mature. Paul is praying and his team that you would grow in the grace 
and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you come, look, look, when you come to a fork in the road, you're despair, you don't know what to do, you're hurting, you're de- and you're like, oh, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? And these come, I'm not making fun, these come. You go, oh, when I'm weak, you're strong. Lord, I'll trust in you. What promises can I stand on? You don't have to give me an explanation. I'll just stand on the promise, and there the Lord lifts you up and gets you through to the place where you could say, I am so glad that you didn't remove that snake, that obstacle. It did something amazing in my life, growing in you, Lord. (laughs) That's maturity. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Finally, brothers, farewell. That's a funny word right there. (laughs) Signing off his letter, that word has the connotation of grace. In other words, he's saying, finally, brothers and sisters, all I want for you is the grace of God. All grace towards you. Become complete, mature. Be of good comfort. That means courage poured in. Let that sink. Here's what we say. Oh, Lord, if I just have, I know it's $50,000 with the wheel package and the proper trim, but man, if you get me that, I'm going to be comfortable. Paul prays that you would be comfortable by having courage poured in. And the way that you have courage, look at this, folks, is resting on God's grace. You know he'll show up anytime, anywhere to fight the battle. That's courage. Become complete. Be of good comfort or filled of courage. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's how they did it in those times. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned together in this kind of blessing. It's as if Paul was saying, I want you to be blessed in everything that God is and has and can do. And what would we say to that? <laughs> Amen. Amen. Well, listen, as we close up today, maybe there's something that you're going through. um, You're like, I don't think I can do it anymore. (laughs) Or can I even move through it? Maybe you've even asked the Lord to remove something out of your life, an obstacle or something. He might do that. I'm not saying he wouldn't. But maybe what he's saying is, I'm going to give you victory... (laughs) even though the stake or the peg or the thorn remains. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much for this day and all days that you give us to learn, to grow, to breathe, to be with family, but most importantly, Lord, to worship you, to recognize your, who you are, Lord, and what you've done on our behalf and continue to do. 
Lord, if there's anybody here that feels hopeless or desperate or weak, I pray, Lord, that you would meet them with your grace and power and strength and resource. And Lord, I pray that you would fight on their behalf. Win the battle, would you, Lord? And then I pray that they would turn around and give you all the glory and many would come into your kingdom through their lives and their testimonies. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.